This is Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they receive their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. Okay. When I was in middle school, I had a bit of an identity crisis. Anybody else have an identity crisis in middle school? Or am I the only one? You're lying. Um, we all had an identity crisis in middle school. Uh, but I thought I was a skateboarder, believe it or not. I, I had the chain on my wallet. I had the uh, vans, the brand new vans that I could use to do the the... I can't even think of the, the tricks, the ollies and the rail slides and the heel flips and all of those things. I really believed I was a skateboarder. I had a nice shiny skateboard, right? It had these nice trucks on them and the wheels were nice and glistening. The only problem is, is I hated riding it. <laughs> I hated riding the skateboard. I hated if I fell on the ground and my arms scratched against the pavement. It was... Horrible for me. But yet I wanted to play the part. I'm the skateboarder. And then I remember one of my friends, he called me out. He said, well, that's a really nice skateboard. How come it looks so pretty? Because <laughs> you know, if you uh, are a real legit skateboarder, it's grinding against a curb somewhere or a half pipe. That skateboard is not supposed to look all nice. And so when I, when I was found out, man, I, I went home and I took that skateboard and I took it against the pavement. I just scraped it, scraped it, scraped it, scraped it in order to show that I'm the legit skateboarder. Rather than jumping on it and practicing the tricks, I just wanted to play the part. I was a hypocrite. I was somebody who pretended I was somebody I was not. And he, here's the irony of the whole story. I was the only one who thought I was a skateboarder. Nobody else believed me. Because I wasn't. I was found out, I was exposed, and I was a hypocrite. We oftentimes live life in the arena of the applause of people. We put on a mask in order to show, here's who I really am. And at the same time, we conceal our identity. We don't show who we really are. And the thing about Christianity is that there's no need for a mask. There's no need to conceal. In fact, the work of God through his son Jesus Christ tells us, you don't have to be afraid of who you are. I've made you. I've made you who you are. 
And even in your deepest and darkest places of your life, those things don't need to be concealed because I know those places. And the better that you know them, the better that they're brought before the world and others to see, the better healing can be made in it. Oftentimes, I think in Christianity, we try to pretend that we're perfect. We try to pretend like we have it all together. We try to pretend that we are an example, a great example to look at. And Jesus here is writing this warning against this pretense, against trying to perform for the applause of others. He's saying there's no place in Christianity for this. And why is that? Because your Father who is in heaven sees all. Your Father who is in heaven knows all. Your Father who is in heaven hears all. You can never pretend before the God who knows everything about you that you are someone else. There's no room for pretense or performance within Christianity And the marks of hypocrisy that are on our lives. Listen, one of the greatest accusations of the watching world into Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. If you type it on Google, it'll finish the sentence for you. (laughs) Christians are hypocrites. That's the accusation. And we don't have to tell them we're not. We can say that we have this tendency in us that needs to die, that God wants to expose. There's a man named R.C. Sproul who used this phrase a lot. I don't know if uh, uh, he termed it, but he's certainly one that has used it a lot. It's called Coram Deo. Life in the presence of God lived for the glory of God. Life in the presence of God lived for the glory of God. Even as I come up here to preach, there's this tendency I have in order to to gain the approval or the applause of others and, and, and that you would be the audience. But in reality, the best way that I could love you is to be authentic before you with the Father. That it's not about me, that it's about Him. And oftentimes with Christianity, we feel our shortcomings, we feel our faults, we feel our failures, and we want to put some makeup on it so that it's not exposed. And Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You're just a bunch of good-looking dead people. So lest we become like them, this warning is really important for us to pay attention to, that we would live life in the presence of God And we would live it for the glory of God. Jesus here gives us these illustrations, and they're pretty vivid illustrations for the people he would have given them to. Remember that Jesus is preaching about the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Pay attention. God's doing something. Turn towards him. Fix your eyes towards him because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's got this following of people. And I really love the following of people that's with Jesus because he's healing the sick. He's causing the blind to see. He's making the lame leap like deer. 
It's the outcasts that Jesus is calling forth to him. It's the imperfect people. It's the people who are broken and they know it. And he calls them to his kingdom. And then he brings them this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, which is unlike anything you would think would be the inauguration speech of the kingdom of God. He gets his band of, of, of misfits and rebels together and he gives his ultimate sermon, his manifesto. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is not assembling this power 500 company for the Forbes list. He's assembling the people of the kingdom of God whom Jesus Christ would renew from the inside out. And the whole goal of the Sermon on the Mount was to confront the teachings of the religious leaders of, their, of his time and was to tell them truly the heart of God in the word of God. And so he uses these examples of hypocrisy. He has it three times. You see it uh, in the first four verses as it relates to giving of alms. You see it in the uh, the passage on prayer, uh, you also see it in the passage on fasting. There's this illustration, this picture of what a hypocrite is. And the hypocrite is the Pharisee. The Pharisees weren't always disdained. They were actually applauded. If you wanted to see a picture of holiness, you looked at a Pharisee and thought, that, that's my picture of holiness. If I'm going to be holy and I have a, a real life example of holiness, then look at a Pharisee and try to imitate the life of a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees had like a monopoly on holiness. They were the ones who were always at the prayer meetings. They were the ones who were always following the band when the uh, alms were given and the uh, and the poor came along the streets. They were the ones who were the first to line up and to empty their pockets. They were the ones who were the most disheveled faces when it was a call to national fast. They were the ones that you would look at at holiness and see that this is the standard that I have to live up to. And Jesus calls them out. He says, no, that's not holiness. That's wickedness. Because their motivation is to be seen by others. They practice righteousness in order to show not how holy God is, but how holy they are. And that's why Jesus says later on, do what they say, but don't live like they live. Because they could say all the right words, but yet their hearts were far, were far, were far from God. And Jesus, when he was preaching, he would use these illustrations and he wasn't concerned about laughter. He wasn't concerned about your entertainment when he told stories. 
He wasn't concerned about keeping your intention. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way about these illustrations. He says, they're meant to open the listener's conscience and help him realize his true spiritual condition before God. That was why Jesus told these stories. That was why Jesus told parables. It wasn't to make you laugh. It wasn't to keep your attention. It was that your conscience would be laid bare before a holy and righteous God and you would cry out to him. That's the nature of Jesus' message is that your heart would be read by the Father in heaven. And so Jesus has already done a lot of correcting of the false teaching of his day and time. We know from Matthew chapter 5, just the previous passage, that Jesus corrects their idea of vengeance and retribution. Their idea of the justice system. That the justice system actually gave them room to, uh, to, to harm someone who had harmed them. To take what should have been done in the courts into their private life and deal with it on their own terms. And so they allowed the law of God uh, uh, to be perverted for their own use. They also thought that they had the right to to hate anyone who was non-Jewish. They thought the verses love your neighbor uh, uh, as yourself was confined to their Jewish faith. So they could hate the Romans. So they could hate the tax collectors. So they could hate those who were unclean. They also, in their hearts, thought murderous thoughts. And so Jesus teaches about murder and he takes the command that God gave to Moses as a good and incredible command for God's people. And he says, it's not just about the actions, that God doesn't just want to correct your behavior. He wants to reorient your heart towards him. And so it's not just about the action of murder, but it's that in our hearts we could think hatred that brings someone to death in our mind. And we've done it before. You're dead to me. This person's dead to me. And we just kind of conveniently knock them off of our life. Yeah, we don't hire a hitman, but we do it in our own mind. And we also see that the woman, uh, the, the, uh, they committed adultery with their lustful thoughts. It wasn't just in their action. It was in their hearts. And divorce as well. They would abuse women by taking the law of Moses and using it as a way for divorce for any cause. And so if they were frustrated with their wife, they could simply hire a scribe. The scribe would draw up the papers. Divorce would be done. And then they would go and find themselves a new wife. And then it would repeat over and over and over again. And so do you see what Jesus is doing? He's bringing correction to what has been the distorted and deluded word of God through the lens of the Pharisees. And he's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. And he's also doing this for us because we have that propensity. We have the propensity for hypocrisy. The Pharisees, they would, uh, when they gave alms, they would hire a trumpeter that would parade through the city and they would line up behind the trumpeter and they would have their pockets full of coins. And then as those who are poor gathered around them would give of their 
offering to the poor, their alms to the poor, all for the applause of those around them. It would be the equivalent of us just walking around with our camera whenever we do something good, taking a selfie and putting it on Facebook, right? This is why we're not very far from them. Royal Caribbean, uh, and I was following the, the storm for the hurricane that went through the Bahamas, and, and we, we celebrated that the major cruise lines, Royal Caribbean, Disney, and Carnival, all donated uh, millions of dollars towards um, the rebuilding efforts of the Bahamas. And we, let's just celebrate that. that. That's just this incredible thing. But do you know that they have private islands there, Right? You know that it's really good that their employees actually have a place to live so they could work for them, isn't it? And do you know that $1 million in the midst of billions of profits is just a drop in the bucket? And so we hire someone for a press release and we put it on notice. And we do the same. If we go and feed the poor, it's like we got to put it on social media. We've got to show somebody what we're doing God warns us here. Jesus says, be warned. Be warned. Those are his words. Beware. Proceed with caution of your practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This verse, uh, I was thinking about this uh, this past week and yesterday I went to the Dollar Tree and I bought some Halloween decorations. That shows you how much I love decorating for Halloween. Um, my daughter Adeline drugged me out there and she says, Daddy, when are we going to put the spider cobwebs on the bushes and all that kind of stuff? And so I said, all right, I'll go and spend a few bucks on some Halloween decorations and we'll make a good Saturday of it. And so take her there and uh, we get in line and there's this woman who is uh, purchasing a few things. And, and I see that this, this woman, she pulls out, she's just counting her change. And, and I thought to myself, now's my chance. Nobody sees Nobody sees. Now's my chance. And so I tell the cashier, just go ahead and put that on mine. Um, put it on mine. And she goes, very thankful. And I thought to myself, oh, oh so good. I'm going to get my reward. And then from, you know, someone comes around the corner and grabs my shoulder. And they said, what you did there was so kind. And I thought, no, no, you ruined it. You ruined my reward. Because again, I'm trying to remind myself, even in that moment, how amazing I am that that $3 was so valuable and so righteous to me. But I was also reminded in that space, that, man, I don't really get it. I don't really get God's bountiful blessings on those he loves. And it's not about what we do, but it's about what he has done. It's not about our generosity, but it's about him. Do you see the purpose of giving? Jesus doesn't say don't give, right? He doesn't say don't give. He says, check your heart. Check your heart. We're called to give. Even in, when we have nothing, we're called to give. That's a call, a biblical call that God gives his children and his people. It's part of the marks of Christianity. But you see that I'm just a beggar pointing another beggar to where to find the bread. 
See, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. Giving reminds me that I'm broke and that my wealth adds nothing to my heart. In fact, it can be a great delusion if I think it adds anything to my righteousness. And he does it with prayer as well. He, they're in the synagogues, in the street corners, in order to be seen by men. They prayed more in prayer meetings than they did alone. They prayed, their spiritual life, their, their some summation of their spiritual life was, was just what they did before others. And so when they went home, they, they were nothing of what they were before others. They were just empty shells. And he did the same with fasting. Do not look gloomy like hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. They would literally disfigure their faces. They took ashes and they would put it on their faces and they would make sure they didn't use deodorant to show how holy they were, which using deodorant is a very holy thing, by the way. It's a very good thing for us. Um, and they would go to great lengths to show of this righteousness. And Jesus calls them on it. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like them that you may be seen by other. And then this is repeated, this warning. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. If the approval of others is what you're out for, then the approval of others is all you're gonna get. Let me say that to you again. If the approval of others is all that you're out for, the approval of others is all you're gonna get. And it's not good. It's not that good. You, you know the fickle nature of the applause of men. Winston Churchill was once asked how he handled crowds so well. It, many people would line up and want to speak to Winston Churchill or watch Winston Churchill give some kind of address. And they would say, how, how do you handle like all, all this celebrity status that you have. He says, well, I remind myself if this was to be my execution that the crowd would be three times as big. <laughs> and people, they're fickle. Their applause is one way one day and one day another. I, I found this in the Christian community this week. And even myself in this, Kanye West comes out with a new album. We were saying Kanye's of hell just a few months ago. And now we're saying that his music is heavenly. I like the new songs, by the way. It's pretty good. But we, we need to be careful. This is why I applaud this, this work that may be going on in his heart. And seeing this genuine work that's taken place. I pray it to be a genuine work. But we also need to make sure that we don't get caught up in the celebrity as if Jesus needs Kanye West to prop him up. He doesn't. Kanye West needs Jesus. It's not Jesus that needs Kanye West or any other celebrity. And take note of this, friends, because we're living in a culture where people are rapidly, I mean rapidly pushing eject on Christianity. You read any uh, any statistic, any poll, it'll tell you that the largest growing religion in the United States of America is the nuns. Not the nuns like Catholic nuns. It's the N-O-N-E-S. No religion, religion. 
And that's rapidly growing. And I wonder, why is this the question? Because Christianity doesn't come with the same cultural benefits that it used to. Christianity used to come with these cultural benefits that says, if you're in church on Sunday, that's something to be applauded. That's just what we do. We're the leave it to beaver households. And over the last 20 or so years, probably even longer than that, it started to erode. And now we're pushing fast forward on this thing. And people who were celebrity pastors and preachers are saying no to God, which once they were orthodox believers. How could this be? Because the applause of man isn't as loud as it used to be. And so it's more convenient to say no to Jesus than it was before. And you can still get the applause. They're still getting the applause because they're chasing after that arena of others' approval. Beware. Beware. The substance of your faith is not other people speaking well about you. Because they won't always do it. And one day, even our Christianity, even holding fast to the faith of the sound doctrine of the word of God, it will be spoken of as a curse. You will be maligned. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like they persecuted the prophets who were before me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. And so this is the way God's called us to be, not like the hypocrites, but if we're going to get anywhere with this. We have to acknowledge our hypocritical tendency, our hypocritical reality. That the mask has to come off. John Stott talked about this word hypocrite. He says, the word came to be applied to anybody who treats the world as a stage on which he plays a part. He lays aside his true identity and assumes a false one. He's no longer himself, but in disguise, impersonating someone else, he wears a mask we got to take the mask off. we got to take the mask off. we got to stop pretending and performing. We've got to really allow the intimacy of the Father to hit our hearts. That's the goal of Jesus' preaching here. It's not just that you would take the mask off. It's that the hard shell of your heart would be eroded so he can get deep down inside. 10 times in 18 verses, Jesus references the word father. Father. At 10 years old, my kids know me pretty well and I know my kids really well. And you know what? They can't hide before their father. I know them. It's funny, I, I kind of see it in in my kids, they want to wear the name brand stuff now. Listen, your dad's a pastor. We're going to have to get you the generic. Come on. <laughs> we'll find it at Ross if we can. The royalties on that one. Um, but um, sorry, uh, got distracted there. But there's something that's beautiful in the relationship with a father and, and, their ch and his children is that the children, when they feel free to be who they are, they can be known and loved. The same is true with the father or the mother, for that matter. You, you can't pretend before your children. They know you. There's this intimacy that exists within the house. And a, a family where pretense rules is a family where you want to get out as fast as you can because 
you feel this falseness all around you. And what's the answer? Is it to leave? Is it to push eject on the people that God has put you with to love and love wholeheartedly? No. The answer is to take off your mask and be real. That's why one of the things I tell dads that are struggling with as it relates to parenting their children or even in marriage is that you know your main call as a parent is that you're to lead in repentance, not in perfection. Repentance, that you could say before your children, I'm not perfect, I don't have it all together, that I really messed up when I yelled at you earlier, that when I disciplined you earlier is because you were inconveniencing me and you made me uncomfortable rather than really loving you, that you would show that in your grief, in your tears, and they would see that and they would want to be like you. Not because you're perfect, but because you know you're not. And one of the greatest examples that we could give to our children and to the world around you, this doesn't just apply to kids, by the way, this is life in general, is that we need Jesus and that we're walking in a different way. And so Jesus aims at the heart here. So the first part we looked at was the hypocrisy and now we look at that we are in need of God to minister to our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. The NIV says, above all, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. That our heart are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Hebrews 2 says that we should beware lest we drift away. If we're not guarding our hearts, here's what the shift looks like away from God. Is that we slowly and subtly allow other things to capture our attention more than him. A friend of mine's a pastor up in New York City. He says, distraction leads to disillusionment. You, you can easily get distracted. You can easily give your attention to other things that are not worth it. Like, for example, the applause of others. And when you give your attention to the applause of others, rather than the one whose applause matters most, then it leads to disillusionment. Because when you don't get the applause of others, you get disillusioned with God because you think God owes you something. And in your heart is exposed an idol that I am idolizing the approval of others. And you know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to crush that idol. He wants to bring it to death. He wants to take it down. And that's what we are called to do. Rather than being distracted and disillusioned, our attention needs to be refocused. And this is how we guard our heart is that we give our attention to the one who is worthy of our adoration. Where distraction leads to disillusionment, attention leads to adoration. That if we give ourselves to the beauty of Christ, we'll be so captivated by him that the approval of others doesn't matter to us. That we don't read our Bibles just to take a selfie and say that we've done it. That we don't pray before others just because of who's at the prayer meeting. That we don't fast I don't think it's a lost art in this world today, but we don't fast in order to show that, that we're 
hungry for man's applause, but that we're hungry for righteousness that only God can provide. Fasting is a discipline that shows us that bread doesn't satisfy. And whenever those hunger pains comes, it reminds us that only Jesus satisfies. And those hunger pains become a reminder not to go and eat our food, but seek the righteousness or the food that only Christ can provide. And that's what we seek. And that's how we guard our heart. So Jesus isn't saying that these disciplines don't matter. No, they really do matter. But the motivation is going to kill you unless your heart is first guarded by the grace of God. That's why Psalm 26 two says, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Test me, O Lord, and try me. God would examine our hearts. This is the beauty of the church, right? This is why at the church we have some structure, structure of community groups and prayers and things like that. That structure is meant to help you, support you. But there has to be a flourishing that goes on underneath that structure in your own life if the vine is going to grow on the structure. And the structure has to be that you're not just doing things in the arena of, of others because if your spirituality is limited to a place like this or your community groups or our prayer meetings, then you, you, you aren't growing. You aren't. But our spirituality is in that secret place before the intimacy of the Father that that's what we long for. And that's the place that God is calling us to return. And that's the place where we cry out this Psalm 26.2. Test me, O Lord. Try me. Examine my heart and my mind. That I might be shown to be real before you. Real. We, um, we live in a world that's filled with instant celebrity. Um, and, and somehow we think that maybe we'll become a celebrity. My family, we, we were watching, uh, have you anybody seen the Bucket List family on YouTube? Anybody seen the Bucket List family on YouTube? Such a beautiful family, right? I mean, this guy sold all of his possessions and he just went on vacation and he put it all on social media. And then after about six months of, uh, of, of doing this, he started to become profitable, right? And I remember we were watching this with my kids and, and, and uh, my kids looked at me one day and they said, hey, dad, why don't you do that? I said, number one, I don't look as good as he does with a shirt off. Number two, number two is that I'm called to something different. I'm not called to the applause of others. And yeah, the bucket list sounds really good to check the box all through and through. But what does it matter? If you were created to find intimacy with a father, and I'm not saying any indictment on that family, I'm saying this about me, what does it matter if you're created with intimacy with a father and you're giving your attention to every other thing that this world is giving your, our attention to and we feel empty and void and meaningless as a result? Or maybe you find purpose and significance, but it's not in what God has called you to. So our hope is what we need to examine. What's our hope? What's, what's our hope in the spiritual life, in this life of intimacy with the Father? It's that. It's the reward of God's presence. Life in the presence of God for the glory of God. 
That's it. That's our reward. Well, that's it. That's our reward. Just, just him. He's enough. He's, he's good enough for you. Like his love is so captivating for you that it draws you in. He woos you to himself. And he doesn't say, I'll give you a brand new Lamborghini if you come over here and worship me. He doesn't say that. He says, I'll give you myself. And so all the things, all the allure that the world has to offer, this is the heart of hearts of Christianity, is nothing, is rubbish compared to knowing him. And that's what the intimacy of the Father seeks to draw us to. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, the supreme matter in this life and world for all of us is to realize, that, realize our relationship to God. Do you hear that? The supreme matter, when you wake up in the morning, it's not what you're going to do over the next 8 to 12 or 15 hours. It's your relationship with God. That's the priority thing. That's why a guy named George Mueller says that the, the most important thing for his day is to make his heart happy in the Lord. Happy in the Lord. This is the supreme thing. It's our relationship to God. He says, I suggest that it is the greatest cause of all our failures is that we constantly forget our relationship to God. You know, the Pharisees forgot their relationship to God. They had forgotten that God isn't about you parading yourself before others, but God is about you knowing him. That's it, you knowing him. That we get to know the creator of the universe, the one who put the stars in the sky, the one who created the sea and all that is in it. He's the one that we get to call our father. And he is our reward. He continues on to say, our Lord puts it like this. We should realize that our supreme object in life should be to please God, to please him only, and to please him always and in everything. If that is our aim, we cannot go wrong. That every day when we wake, God, I live for you. God, I live for you. And here's the beautiful part about this is that when you live for God, you're actually free to love others without expecting anything in return, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because you don't need the approval or applause of others. If I truly love you, church, then I don't need your applause and approval because I find that God's pleasure is my aim. And so I'm free to tell you the truth. I'm free to to admonish you. I'm free to encourage you. I'm free to rebuke you. I'm free to do that because I don't care what you think about me. I care less about you liking me than me truly loving you. I, I'm, my goal is to love you. And that means that my love of the Lord should be first. And if I'm trying to get something from you that I should only get from him, then I'm gonna be empty. And that's why Matthew 6, says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And we seek the Father. Jesus lays out this principle through the rest of Matthew chapter 6 as it relates to prayer. Our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
that your name would be holy in our church, that your name would be holy in our world, that your name would be holy in our life. And it's no small thing for us to seek the presence and intimacy of the Father. Um, if you've known me, you've gotten to know my story over the past eight months or so after my dad's passing, you know that there's this huge hole in my heart where the presence of my dad isn't there. I long to speak to him. It's just kind of second nature. I was in Turkey enjoying the beautiful scenes, uh, enjoying the ministry of the people there, and my first thing I wanted to do was get dad on the phone and tell him about it. There's this intimacy that I miss that was there with the father. Do, do you know that I believe that God's using that right now? And here's how he's using it, because in my dad's absence, God is reminding me of his presence. And just as I could be real with my father here on earth, I could be real with him. That's so good. It was one of the greatest examples of what a good relationship is like between a father and a son, is where a son could be real before his father. But I could even be more real before my heavenly father. I could go to him with all my jacked up, broken stuff. I could be honest with him. And this God who has made everything and who can destroy me in a moment because of my sin only offers me his love and grace. Why? Because Jesus gave it to me at the cross. God only had one perfect son, has one perfect son, and his name is Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. Sons and daughters, we are sons and daughters, but the reason why we're called sons and daughters is because of the perfect son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And so we seek our reward, not through what we've done, but through Christ, what Christ has done. And our reward is this restored and right relationship with the Father. And let me read you these Beatitudes again because I want to remind you of your reward. Because this is the reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is satisfaction. Blessed are the merciful, because God has given you mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because God shows himself powerfully to you. My paraphrase. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called family of the Father, sons and daughters of the living God and King who's on high. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that right now, God is a place for us to really just take off the mask. Even as we take communion, Lord, it's, it's not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. It's a reminder that the grace given to us in Jesus Christ is, is really for me. It's not for everybody else, it's for me. And Lord, even though we are prone to wonder, we know you hold us. So God, it's in this place of intimacy right now that I pray that our church enters into. 
place of genuinely seeking you, not needing anything from anyone else, but Lord, desperate for you, because we are. God, if we, have, if we don't have you, we don't have anything. So Lord, we thank you that you've given us everything. In Jesus' name, amen.